It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Great form by you hitting play on this podcast. Now, check out Same Racer, the brand new racing app for Same Race multi-tips. Same Racer. Download from the App Store and Google Play. Powered by Bluebet. Gamble responsibly. Call 1-800-858-858. Welcome to Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Hello, my name is Tim McMillan. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories brought to you by Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Uh, my guest in this episode uh, is a man of many talents and many, many accomplishments. A champion footballer. Uh, he wore the jerseys of various clubs around Australia. Also the Socceroos and in England with Crystal Palace and Portsmouth. The end of his professional days saw him move into the commentary box where he was fortunate enough to sit alongside absolute legends of the game like Johnny Warren and Les Murray. More recently, he's become a human rights activist and author, uh, spearheading an incredible and difficult campaign to save Melbourne-based former Bahraini footballer turned refugee Hakeem Al-Arabi, who'd been arrested in Thailand at the command of Bahraini authorities. They wanted him back in the Gulf state to face what was almost certainly going to be a life of persecution. It is an incredible story in itself. Craig Foster, hello. Thank you for your time. Oh, that's my pleasure, Tim. Nice to speak with you. Uh, we're going to spend some time going through that uh, extraordinary tale uh, in a little while of, of Hakeem. But firstly, let's talk about you. Craig, Andrew Foster, a name that doesn't end in a vowel, it doesn't end in itch or ski. Um, growing up uh, in, in Australia... You wanted to play football. How did that come about? Well, I'm from up in a country area of New South Wales. Many people in Australia, and and I'm sure in WA as well, will know whilst you have your very beautiful holiday spots, Mm -hmm. we have up in northern New South Wales some of the best, I would argue, Byron Bay. Controversial. And and they're hard to beat, and that's where I'm from. I'm from a place called Lismore, just inland to those uh, to that area. So extraordinarily beautiful, natural environment. Uh, and when I was growing up, a very Anglo environment as well. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a diversity, cultural diversity that we do happily have up in that area today, which is wonderful. Um, a very high or higher than the national average uh, indigenous uh, Aboriginal population in particular. Um, but as for other cultural backgrounds, very few and far between it was as I was growing up. And so the, um, you know, a life spent in football has been a great gift for me because I've been able to spend my entire life from the age of probably 15, I'm 52 now, uh, within multi-cultures. Mm. Uh, that is both multicultural Australia um, and various cultures around the world by travelling mm. and playing the, the, the beautiful game of football. Um, so, you know, growing up in the country, sport in Australia in many areas uh, has always been really important. It's a central part of community. So all us country kids played virtually every sport. Um, and, you know, uh, became skilled at a few. Usually you had a lot of multi-sport athletes come out of those types of areas. And 
I just at some point decided that football was the one. You know, I used to watch uh, English Premier League or, or English First Division as it was on a Monday night yeah. called Match of the Day. Yeah. You know, we didn't have it. Yet, that was so all you had, actually, right? That was that was all there was. We didn't even have the SBS signal. We used to call it <laughs> Channel 28. So yeah. It was ironic. I ended up on SBS. I didn't even know what it was. And then, <laughs> and so we used to, watch, used to watch Tottenham and Liverpool and Craigie Johnston and, you know, legends like that and think that would be wonderful one day. And then, you know, it just kind of went on from there. To fall in love with the round ball, though, where there were so many other sports around and, uh, you you know, you would have seen so much uh, attention poured on, I'm guessing, NRL. Uh, in that part of yeah, New South Wales, what was it yeah. that made you fall in love with the with the round ball above all others? I didn't play a lot of rugby league, very little. I mean, they just used to smash the hell out of me, you know. So <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't the most enjoyable. Um, my brother played a bit, and my friends played, but um, I just I just found an aptitude for the game, um, and I used to play a lot of basketball, cricket. Um, actually one of your, your guys over there, I was speaking to the other day, Adam Gilchrist yep. went to our school, you yes, know, he right. and his brothers. So, same school. Yeah. So they were same school. Yeah. They come in high school, um, to Kadena high school in, uh, Ganella bar in Lismore. And so we all played cricket and a football soccer together, yep. um, you know, in both the teams and, and they were better cricketers and we probably were, you know, had a bit more aptitude for football. So yeah. we all kind of found our right place in the end, which was nice. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure how Gilly would have went, you know, as a number 10 for the Socceroos, but... He would have um, made a it, fantastic it, goalie too, actually, wouldn't he? He probably would have. You're right, actually. You're right. So we, <laughs> we all loved the sport. It's what brought the community together. Um, and, you know, a, a life in sport, as, as you would know, whether it's playing it or discussing it and so on, is really lovely. Yep. Um, I think the older I get, I, I you know, I do uh, have a lot of gratitude for what a sport has been able to, to provide for me. And therefore, I try to um, use what I have to give other children the same opportunity. Mm-hmm. And that means having not just access to sport, but also to lower barriers of racism and other things that they might face. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, I made that choice for football and then I went down in my mid teens, you know, I played for the Australian junior team and ended up at the AIS, um, in their program. And and Mm. from there, it was just a stepping stone to moving on Socceroos and others. At what point did you realise that you were actually pretty good at this? You mentioned uh, playing for Australia uh, there as a teenager. Uh, Under-16s, yeah, you went to the, the world champs in China. You guys made the quarterfinals. At, at what point did someone tell you or did you work out for yourself that you are actually pretty darn good at this sport? Um, well, you know, I started to progress and make the representative teams, Um but I was never kind of, um, you know, I didn't make those teams as a young person and think, oh, wow, you know, I'm doing really great. I must be really good. You just kind of, you know, the thing about sport is it's about progress. It's about ambition. You know, it's about, you know, the next achievement. And, you know, so it teaches all, all of those things as you go. I, I don't know how much, um, you know, some of us might have those things inherently, Yep. or whether we learned those skills through sport in early times because, you know, we off, we, we still continue to apply all those things today, always looking for the next challenge, you know. Um, but, um, you know, you just start to make these various representative teams, you know, under 12s, under 13s, under 14s, and it, it just kind of snowballs and people give you the, the positive feedback around as well. And as I've said many times also, the older I get, I recognise that there was no barriers in front of me yep. either. Right, yep. you know, here I am. I'm a wide Anglo young player out of a out of a, a you know a very white 
a beautiful country town. And so no one ever looked at me askance. No one ever thought, you know, I had no problem with the a language, you know, I, I'm in the in the predominance of the, the cultural majority, and and so I was able to just go really, aside from injury, really quite smoothly through, and um, and be able to just create a career. Having said all that, given your uh, your attributes and your background, how did mm. you go being welcomed into the fold uh, at Sydney, Croatia, uh, where you played in, yeah. in some of your early days? We're talking the late 80s, back in the NSL uh, era of Australian football, where you had clubs that were so uh, entrenched in their communities uh, and, and took on, you know, the, the, the religion and the ethnicity uh, of that community, um, you know, to a great degree. How did you, how did you go fitting into that environment as a, as a well, still a kid? Yeah, just a kid. Yeah, really wonderful time. It was very new for me because, as I said, I hadn't watched it on TV. I hadn't grown up with all of these clubs, even in the even in the just um, you know immediately preceding years. So I went to the AIS, and all of the kids who were there with us, a lot from Victoria and from Sydney and from capital cities, and they knew about SBS. They knew Les and Johnny. They knew all of these clubs, and their ambition was to play for them. Um, whereas I didn't really have a clue what was going on. I just thought, you know, I, I, would like to go and play for the country. That's, that's, that was my ambition coming out of a country that was, that's typically very important to us. Mm. Um, and you know, when I used to sit with my family and my father and my grandfather and his brothers and, and all of our aunties and so on, you know, at, um, very regularly we would get together, very family oriented atmosphere. They would watch cricket all day long. You know, in mm. fact, they would watch all of the tests, you know, and the Christmas tests and the boxing day tests and all of these things. And so it was very much revered, you know, and people who did that, uh, you know, Ian Chappell and Alan Border and, you know, and they would talk endlessly about these people. And, and it was just a really central part of their life. But you could, there was a sense to me very clearly that they, they felt um, a real, not just adulation, but, you know, a deep respect for these people who played the sport that they played and loved, um, but played at a different level, but also were able to carry this responsibility of not just playing for Australia, but mm. in their view, acting in a way that they thought was Australian. That was yep. very important to them. You know, yep. Ian Chappell is doing this and that's fine with us because of this, you know, and, and so, you know, that that kind of became, I guess, part of my DNA. So pulling on the green and gold was always yeah. very important. But looking back, you know, one of the great gifts that football has, of course, is our diversity, but also one of the real gifts that it gave the country, and I sit on the Australian Multicultural Council today, of course, is I recognise now, we all recognise, all sports, the importance of new arrivals from all different backgrounds, cultural, religious and other, coming to Australia and finding their way into society, right? Mm. Um, and being able to what we call, you know, integrate. That is just become part of the country and make your own way, whatever that is. And sport is, of course, in this country, a huge connecting factor, you know, a really critically important factor. And I was just out yesterday, um, you know, giving some footballs and boots to some of our new Afghan families, for example, who've only been here for a number of weeks. And the first thing that the kids want is, you know, football to be able to go outside and play. You know, they're all, they've all got 30 of them doing it with one ball. So it mm. just shows you the importance. Yep. Football was that to many migrant communities. Um, and, and then it allowed me, therefore, it allowed all of these communities to not only integrate in Australian society but work out their own enmities between them. And it also gave me a platform then to step into that environment and start to understand the different cultures. And that's been a beautiful part of my life. Yeah, and, and continues to be more and more so by the sounds of it. Uh, Foz, we need to take a, a quick break. After that, I want to ask you uh, about the moment uh, you were 
us to take on the uh, the green and gold. Wear the green and gold uh, for the first time as a socceroo. We'll get into that right after we take a break. Craig Foster is our special guest. This is Inspiring Stories. Back with more in a moment. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Our special guest in this episode is Craig Foster. Craig, um, 29 caps for the Socceroos. Nine goals uh, you put in the back of the net uh, with the green and gold on. Uh, tell me about the first time you were invited to be a part of the the team. That must have been uh, an incredibly special moment for you. It was it was pretty special because it took me until I was 26 years old. And whilst I came up very young, and by the age of 15, almost 16, I was playing in the young team in the world in the first kids World Cup, basically. Um, you know, and that whole generation, therefore, was seen as, you know, a group of stars coming through and we had some fabulous players there. I got some really bad injuries and it took me many, many, many years to battle back. And I just kept going and going and going and going. And, um, you know, I broke the bone in my foot three times, which as a footballer, of course, is not terribly helpful. So I ended up with screws <laughs> <No>. in my... <laughs> I had screws in my ankle, screws in my foot. Um, you know, I had reconstructions on my knees. In fact, my second reconstruction, I was still in the Socceroos. And this goes to show late 90s. This goes to show you how the difference in sports science works today. <laughs> I, we, we actually had a game we were playing against the FIFA World Eleven. It was here in Sydney. It was one of the games. It might have been the game to open the uh, ANZ, uh, today's ANZ Stadium, Australia yeah. Stadium. Yeah. And, uh, and I was at, um, I think it was at Christmas Palace at the time, still in the Socceroos. And I just said to the coaching staff and others, look, I can't play in the game you know, cause I've got a, a, you know, my hamstring's gone. I've got a bad hamstring. Uh, and they said, oh, okay, no worries. We'll just come back. So I went out to the game, you know, with a pair of tracksuit pants on and just hung around, you know, saying, look, you know, it's just not good. Uh, whereas in fact, I'd had a reconstruction of the knee. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that was, that was the old, you know, that was the eighties and the nineties. Yeah. You know, it was nothing like today. Now, if, of course, if I had, if we had have had, you know, the sports science support that players have today, you know, it's very likely we, we wouldn't have had those operations, but, yeah. um, so I had to battle through to answer your question. And, yeah. um, I ended up selected, went over to South Africa and I played the first game against Ghana. So look, I remember it very well. Everyone does. Um, I, um, you know, we change over time though, but I always thought playing for Australia was something very important. It represented to me, you know, it was, it was, it was a, a portion. I couldn't say what portion, but it was a portion to do with being an athlete and representing and actually competing and, and reaching what I saw as, you know, one of the highest levels, mm. but it was very much a very large portion to me about this notion of what it meant to me to be Australian. You know, yep. I just, I really felt that strongly. Of course, at yep. 52, my notion of that is very different to what it was when I was 26, but I was already at that time, for instance, a member of the Republican movement. And even at that time I was, you know, I was speaking with Malcolm Turnbull around the, um, you know, um, a couple of years later on the referendum and these types of things. So, you know, yep. I, I, I remember how I felt on the day and now today I look back and think, well, you know what? The truth is that, um, you know, I'd like to see our flag changed. You know, I'd like to see our anthem change become more representative. And we had one word recently, I think we should do more and, and, you know, and, and, and recognize our ancient history and all of these things, mm. you know, that's how I reflect on, mm. You know, sport to me now is just the prism for everything, yeah. right? And yeah. so even when I think about those sporting moments, I always see it through this, 
this kind of context of um, you know where where I am today in my fifties and where Australia is. Yeah. Having said that, just on the the sporting level uh, alone, mm. uh, being part of the Socceroos at that time, we were so desperate to have another crack at a World Cup. Weren't we? and oh, unfortunately, you were in the in the team during a, a period where we we didn't quite make it. I mean, certainly you were there in the commentary box when we did oh. make it uh, to qualify for for two thousand and six. But um, did you feel an enormous weight of pressure? And the country was just riding the mm. wave of of hope so hard, weren't they? Um, I mean, you, ninety eight to Iran, oh, ninety four to Argentina, two thousand and two to Uruguay. Um, you were you were. Yeah playing at least through the through the Iran time um what was that like carrying that weight of expectation yeah it was 97 so you know we were there in 74 so you're talking yep. you know 24 years um yep there was huge expectation the game was you know close to bankrupt and therefore this team had what you know could deliver several million dollars in prize money so of course we knew the the broader context you had les and johnny on air you know talking about it and and um, we understood. But the thing about as an athlete is that you uh, become very skilled at blocking out those things. Um, mm-hmm. And you become that that's that's what I see as this concept of professionalism. You know, professionalism from the athlete side is really the ability to, of course, uh, work on your craft and your profession, your trade every day, you know, in a systematic manner and improve. But more than that, in sport, it's about being able to perform under any type of pressure. Yeah. And so, on, you know, all I remember about that game is the game. Yeah. You know, I don't remember the crowd. I don't remember the thing. I just remember yeah. the fact that, you know, we we pretty much smashed Iran, uh, you know, and then this guy came and jumped on the net. There was no way, no one would ever say there's no way we weren't going to win that game. You know, Iran were really beaten in a lot of respects. They yeah. had no answers. They couldn't readjust. Um, their best players weren't performing. There wasn't that many much lo- longer to go in the game, and um, and there was, you know, and we were in almost complete dominance. And then someone, this this person, jumped on the net, stopped the game. They were able to readjust. We clearly didn't readjust well enough. Mm. Um, and the, you know, their coach, I think, did some did some good work. They came out. They were different. They got a reward quickly, and the game changed very, very quickly. And all I remember afterwards is just the devastation of the fact because we knew you do, I think afterwards, you know, that's when the emotion comes out because you allow yourself to realize that, you know, um, all different levels, the family, friends, uh, the game, you know, what it would have meant for football in Australia, the, the country, people who, you know, love the national team, you do then get a sense that, oh, man, you know, mm. this is really, really <laughs> bad. And I was, still remember it, it so well. It was terrible. It was horrible. And it was just like, um, uh, you know, it's probably inappropriate um, analogy at the moment, but it was just like, um, I was going to say it was like death, you know, it was like, someone had actually passed away because it, yeah. no one could talk. Everyone just sat no. and, uh, and you couldn't, and it actually was difficult because in the month after that, I remember going back abroad and, um, and you actually couldn't talk to anyone about what had gone on mm-hmm. because people outside of that team couldn't possibly understand, mm. you know, it's 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 an odd feeling that yeah. you know it was only when we came together a month later we went to play in the confederations cup that actually some of the players i think including me on the flight were in tears because we just hadn't been able to process what had happened because yeah. there's how are you going to talk to it about yeah. you can't yeah 
you could have talked to me, Craig. I would have understood. <laughs> <laughs> um, was it some consolation then for you where you're trying to process that you moved from Australia over to England uh, to take up a spot at Portsmouth with Terry Venables? So on a personal level, that must have been a huge sense of achievement though, yeah? Getting invited to go and play in England. Well, um, yes, um, but, you know, again, you don't, I, I don't think during a sporting career you never, you know, you don't take the time to con- kind of acknowledge yep. milestones. You're just always looking ahead at, mm. you know, and everything's a new challenge. Yep. And that was a new challenge. And I, I went there, you know, in my, in the second part of my 20s. Um, and, you know, and I, I went into an environment that was very different, Um and, uh, and so, you know, it was wonderful. It was wonderful. Crowds, amazing, very, very different. Um, you know, and, and of course the weather and the environment, um, you know, very challenging for playing. It's not like today where they have all the pitches are all underheated and all yeah. these things. <laughs> uh, it was, it was incredible. But, you know, I had grown up with England being, you know, the only really global football that we watched. And yep. so, yeah, it was, um, it was nice. Yeah. Fratton Park, not what it uh, not what it is today. Is it <laughs> could get a bit boggy down there on the coast? Well, yeah, I mean, but those fans, the, the yeah. Pompey fans, are just really yeah. extraordinary. But yeah. again, Incredible. you know, I was also there in an era which financially was really difficult for the clubs. Um, it was at the time when a lot of them were falling over. Um, you know, and so many clubs were going into administration. And so, you know, that's what ended up happening with Portsmouth. So I saw the good and bad of the game. I saw the love of the fans. I saw the beauty of the culture and so on. But I also saw the financial mismanagement. I saw the impact of that on fans. I saw fans trying to buy their own clubs back. You know, mm-hmm. I saw players out of work and all of those things. And so all of those were were, were good learnings mm-hmm. for what I do today, you know, in terms of broadcasting and speaking about broad sport, not just football. Yeah. Um, coming back to Australia, I know you had a stint at Crystal Palace as well. We'll have to sort of zip through your uh, your resume yeah. Yeah, yeah. here a bit, Craig. Coming back to Australia, you know, you finished your professional playing days uh, here in Australia. You mentioned some of the injuries you had before. How is the, how is the body now? Um, is it holding up okay or are you still, you know, having to nurse aches and pains from those days? Well, I'm okay because I try to – I have a policy. I try to, to do as little exercise as possible. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> you know, I'm not one running out and going to gyms and all these things. So, yeah. uh, you know, I preserve what it is that I've got left in my knees and so on. But I, I do still play. So things get a little bit sore, but I'm very fortunate I can still do yeah. You know, the generation before me, Tim, they have, uh, you know, here in the NSL – they were had such poor resources around them. You know, you're talking a lot of hip replacements, knee replacements, you know, good friends of mine. You know, they can barely walk, let alone even think about playing in their 50s. So mm. I've been very fortunate. Yeah. Do you still have that same tenacity on the field that you did back then or do you take it oh, easy? No, no actually, no. <laughs> well, it's funny once you're out of No, and then you can kind of, you know, I can decide how it is I want to play, yeah. whereas – Often in professional environments, I had to give what I what was needed for the team, mm. you know. And so now, no, I can just waltz around, make no tackles, um, yeah. you know, and just have a little prima donna and, and you know touch the ball three times, and you know get stuck in it on not playing to my feet. So yeah. it's beautiful, yeah. Happy days! You should have done this from the get go. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. 
All right, we need to take another break, Craig. After that, uh, your transition from player uh, to commentator and analyst uh, sitting alongside, uh, as I mentioned, two absolute uh, legends of the game here in Australia in uh, Johnny Warren and Les Murray. We'll get into that right after we take a break. This is Inspiring Stories. Back with more in a minute. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Inspiring stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Uh, we are hearing the story of Craig Foster, uh, soccer superstar, commentary superstar, uh, and uh, still going today. He's uh, currently uh, working with uh, the Stan Sports uh, streaming service, current covering uh, the game that he loves. But let's go back to where the commentary at least started, really started. Uh, that is uh, part of the, the SBS team, the, the, the beloved SBS team uh, featuring Johnny Warren and Les Murray. I mean, what a gift that is to be sitting alongside, you know, two absolute champions, like those two guys. I mean, you, you must just pinch yourself still, knowing that you got to spend so long with these guys. Um, yeah, I, I t- it was incredible. Um, you know, sport does give you those opportunities. Mm. Um, you know, I guess you've got to be, um, you know, Les and Johnny were around the Socceroos a lot and so on. So, you know, by by that time, you know, I, I knew them. I certainly knew Johnny well. Uh, and the 2002 World Cup was in Japan, Korea. I was, ju- I hadn't quite retired, but my body was pretty much done by then. And uh, and that uh, Japan, Korea course is in the, our localized um, time zone, and was pretty important. And they they were given a bunch of games basically um, uh, to do at short notice, uh, and they needed another team member. And so they mm. um, called me and said, "Can you come over?" So. They were really amazing. They were loved uh, rightly for a number of reasons, but, um, you know, Les represented more than the game. He Mm. represented multiculturalism. He represented, it was just that he brought it all to life through his love of football, but he represented someone from abroad who'd come to Australia with immense pride in where he'd been and who he was, you know, and he brought that, out on the multicultural channel, which which was amazing, really phenomenal mm. initiative in mm. my view to have a, a multicultural broadcaster in Australia, you know, at that time in early eighties was just fantastic. And so, and all of a sudden, you had whether it was Lee Lin Chin or you had you know Les Murray, and you know you had these people from non-Anglo backgrounds who were able to go on air and and um, and bring their accent and bring their culture and and bring their bearing to the Australian public and what Les did, he did it and so did the others, but in a way uh, that it was clear he was so incredibly proud of who he was, yeah. you know, in his, in, in everything he was, that yeah. meant, you know, coming from Hungary, right? Mm. Um, so his language and his food and uh, he brought his love of football with him. Yeah. And that really touched me. I thought, you know, that's really what Australia is about. Yeah. And so I found, a, I found a home, you know, a football was a home for many reasons. SBS became a home because I believed in that. I still do. Yeah. You know, and Johnny was a bit different. He was an evangelist for the game. And he, like I, believed that football is actually good for Australia. Because, you know, he'd lived through in a way that I hadn't only as a player, but for decades before, Johnny had lived through all of the ethnic communities in Australia, uh, finding their um, uh, finding their place in their new country through football. 
Mm. So Johnny knew better, and he'd been a part of that, and he'd been a captain, you know, of this of the Socceroos, um, you know, with many with players from all around the world, whether it was British heritage or German or others. So he knew inherently better than anyone the, the what football offered to this relatively young immigration nation, not a young nation, but in terms of immigration. Um, and he he understood, you know, the power of the game, not just to Australia itself, not to me and you, but to actually to this concept of inclusion. Mm. And uh, and and I I believed in that. You know, yeah. I, I still very much do. So yeah. it was wonderful to work with them and to and to get to understand the nature of the mission that they felt they were on. Yeah. Uh- I'm sure you've got a million special memories of your time on the couch there with them. But I mean, you know, sometimes it was it was three, four in the morning. You were doing back to back games. You know, we're all back at home in Australia watching bleary eyed, sleep deprived, and just a little bit delirious. You must have had some funny times just trying to get through those oh. <laughs> those moments with those guys. Look, off air was, uh, you know, it was incredibly fun. Sometimes more fun than on air because on air you've got some structure. Off air, it's just <laughs> a mess. Uh, and the one thing that united us all, we were all different backgrounds. We were different ages. We were different cultures. Um, you know, we just that was the beauty. I mean, later on, you know, for many years, I became very close friends with Les, and I would always say, this is actually the beauty of sport. You know, mm. all sports, but in our game. Uh, football is a Hungarian refugee, mm. you know, in his sixties, you know, and an Anglo kid whose family's off the, you know, the first fleet, uh, you know, and from a country area, mm. sitting there as greatest friends in the world, mm. uh, connecting through our shared love of sport. Uh, it's, yep. it's extraordinary yep. connecting force. But they used to just, you know, at SBS, as soon as the camera was off. Oh, you wouldn't want to have a microphone on. I mean, carry on, you know, because we used to get stuck in, you know, because we're fans as well. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, everyone would be swearing at the screen and carrying yeah. on, you know, no way, blah, 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 blah. And then, of course, it'd be, oh, God, you'd back on, back on the stage and we'd sit down and everyone would be very calm. Oh, yeah, yeah. well, look, you know, what the coach did here or what the player did here. <laughs> but people would come there and just be surprised. They'd go, what the hell? There's all hell's broken loose when the whistle goes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what? Well, I suppose that's become sort of one of the things that you have been known for uh, in the – the, the media box or the commentary box, whatever you want to call it, um, Fozzie, not just your great knowledge of the game and your, and your ability to almost forensically analyse it, but also um, carrying the emotion of it as well. And, you know, sometimes um, you've you've made headlines for having some very forthright yeah. interviews and things to say about, um, you know, people yeah. like Andrew Postacoglu, that's probably the most famous one, but also Pim Verbeke as well. In happier yeah. times, though... Let's just revisit 2005, Australia v Uruguay, qualifying for the World mm-hmm. Cup. This was you in the commentary box, losing your mind. Here's Aloisi for a place in the he World Cup. For us. He's yes! Australia have got it! Yeah, well, you're right. I was lost. Yeah. <laughs> I was totally lost.
I think you'd lost the power of speech by then, <laughs> Fuzzy. But yeah, I, I, I was gone. Yeah, the emotion was, was uh, well, it was hard to contain. Yeah, and and uh, of course, what people don't see behind the scenes is all the crew. You know, the camera people and the the technicians—they're all great football fans. You know, yeah. and they're they're Greek Australians, Italian Australians, South American Australian. You know, we had uh, Mexicans and we had Argentines and Chileans. You know, all my friends. They're all there with us, mm. and everyone except Simon, because you know Simon, you know, was hadn't been too long in the country, so he was able to be, you know, really independent. Which was thank God for that. <laughs> yeah. Or we just would have turned off the mic. Yeah. But everyone else was actually in tears. Like we were actually, I was in the back of the booth, like virtually <laughs> crying. Yeah. And then that's why when he said, "Oh, this is happening," I said, "Are you sure?" I just absolutely had no clue. And I and I'm the first person to say that's so unprofessional. Like it's just absolutely ridiculous. It's but pathetic. it was so real. <laughs> but it was so real. And also, you know, I'd played in that team, that actual team, only a few years before. So you know, with many of those players. So and I knew what it meant for the game. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just completely lost everything right but you know what in the end that's what that's what sport is about yeah absolutely the, the, the passion was there on show and and you know as we talked about the that weight of expectation that was the release valve wasn't it in 2005 yeah, it was incredible oh, look, there was so much there there was so much i mean they're spending big money for hitting he wasn't going to hang around wrong um you know if we didn't get through then you know some of those players were retiring we didn't know whether we were going to make it the next time you know the finances of the game were contingent on it you know, they still were coming up with the professional leagues, uh, you know, were under construction at mm-hmm. the time and therefore we knew that, what that could deliver. So that was, they ended up after that with that, I think, the Fox Sports contract for, you know, whatever it was, might have been uh, over a certain number of years, I don't know, 100 and something million. So, you know, that game was worth over $100 million. Yeah, uh, phenomenal. That's, that's what it's about. It was extraordinary. Yep. Yeah. Um, outside of the, the commentary box, you were also uh, taking on some very active roles uh, in an advocacy uh, capacity for the you know the the, the players associations and other bodies like that, um, and I suppose we can trace the, the you know the origins of that wanting to advocate for for others uh, back to your your much younger days. Um, how much of your time did that take up, and what did that give you? What sort of satisfaction did that give you doing those sorts of roles as well? Um, I just think that it's necessary. Mm. Um, I don't know about satisfaction. I mean, some of them, because many of these issues don't come to a conclusion. So they're incredibly frustrating. They're emotional. They're horrible. I mean, look what happened with Afghanistan recently. You know, we were able to get, you know, a bunch of female athletes out of there, but there's at least, you know, 150 people still that I'm in touch with every day. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're just desperate to get we're out. still so stuck there. Still stuck there. And so refugee rights, you know, people in turn, you know, still imprisoned after nine years, you know, who I know, they become friends of mine. Yeah. I mean, it's just horrible. So it's a it's a real, it's a real challenge. I just think that, you know, I've I've um I always had this sense of um wanting to contribute anyway. Um, even if I hadn't played for Australia, it wouldn't have mattered to me. I would have at least wanted to try and in the least sanctimonious manner possible. Uh, to try and just make things better for others, um, whatever I was able to do. It doesn't yeah. matter. I still had a very privileged upbringing. I had parents. Yeah. I have two. You know, I have two parents. I have uh, children. You know, we had we had no great traumas in our life. We didn't have to flee. No one was going to torture us. So I just think that we all have to speak up. And if if you know, the more of us do at the moment, there's a high unit cost 
for people who speak out on human rights. doesn't matter if you want to speak out on the Uyghurs in China or you want to speak out on Israel-Palestine or you want to speak out on any human rights issue around the world um, and Afghanistan at the moment or, you know, Julian Assange, whatever. You know, for people who are speaking out on those, there's a high cost because there's so few. Yep. I happen to believe that the only way to really change the world, and we need change, you know, I mean, the the, the you know, the, the place is on fire, you know, we've got an ocean full of plastic, whatever it is that moves you. If you're quite, and let's talk about racism, okay? So, you know, if if you don't speak up, if I don't say something when I, when, you know, about racism that Indigenous Australia has faced for over 200 years, well, who the hell is going to speak up? Mm. And if I then have a platform and, you know, and something where at least one person trusts me or at least is going to listen, then I have an even greater responsibility because I have yep. privilege. Now, the more people that do it in sport, the the easier it is for each of those people. Mm. And therefore, uh, I'm perfectly prepared to take whatever cost that comes with that. And there are costs, um, you know, both uh, personal as well as, you know, in your broader career and things, because I just happen to think that it is very, very important. And I'm in a privileged position to be able to do yep. so. Yeah, you've led us beautifully to this uh, extraordinary story of Hakeem Al-Arabi, the man that you uh, helped rescue uh, from languishing, firstly uh, in a prison in Thailand and ultimately uh, would have been uh, in a prison or incarcerated in some way in his uh, in his his native country of, of Bahrain. But we'll get into that right after we take a break. Just in terms of your other sort of individual things that you've done, uh, more in a player and 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 commentator capacity, Foz, before we go to a break, you were asked to be uh, a judge for the Ballon d'Or in 2007, mm. which is, you know, for those who don't know, the, the absolute highest award you can give to an individual football player. How did that come yeah. about? And and can you can you tell us who you voted for? Kaká won that year, two thousand seven. Oh. Did you vote for him? I would have definitely voted for him. I loved him. Yeah, I yeah, loved him. Phenomenal. Player. I can't remember the votes. Yeah, I did it for a number of years, and then uh, and then recently, um, you know, the system changed a bit. FIFA took it over as well, so I don't do it today. But yeah, I, I enjoyed that each year trying to work out who was the best. It hasn't been too hard in the last decade, though. No, I mean, you know, one or the other, really, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you don't really need the judges. So no. I think that's why they stop. <laughs> just just it. put an Instagram poll out there or something. Yeah. These days, okay. yeah. Um, but like, what well, worth noting that Kakar beat uh, Ronaldo and Messi uh, in that year of two thousand and seven as well. But hey, he stood oh, comfortably ahead of them. Yeah, that was Spider Kalach. That was Zelka yeah. Kalach who was uh, in that team. They won the Champions League in the repeat fixture of the Miracle of Istanbul where Liverpool yep. played AC yep. Milan. And that Milan team, Sadov, Pirlo, uh, Kaká, uh, yeah. Costa Curta, Maldini, uh, Inzaghi. I mean, that Superstar. thing was just, yeah. it was a machine of beauty, right? Yep. Um, and Kaká was just an absolute magician. So yep. he, he's well-deserved. All right, let's take a break. After that, uh, we'll get you to give us uh, at least the shortish version um, of Hakeem Al-Arabi because it is an incredible story. Uh, we need to take a break. This is Inspiring Stories. Craig Foster is our special guest. Back with more in a moment. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Inspiring stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. 
This is Inspiring Stories. Tim McMillan is my name. Our special guest is Craig Foster. Craig, uh, I've mentioned uh, you've accomplished many things over the years. Human rights activist is just about at the top of that list now, uh, I would dare say. Certainly, um, it's been uh, a big part of your life uh, in, in recent years. Hakeem Al-Arabi, uh, it's an incredible story. Can you just um, give us a, a little short history of, of who Hakeem is and, and how he came to be on your radar? He was a young footballer in Bahrain. He was in the under-23 national team and he was part of a peaceful pro-democracy demonstration back around 11-12. People would remember it as called the Arab Spring where this uh, democracy movement was springing up across various parts of the Middle East. And uh, and due, uh, because of that, uh, the regime there, the royal family run both the government and and uh, in positions of power, they went on television and showed some footage and said all of these high-profile people, especially sports people who took part in that demonstration against us, basically against the royal family for a new democracy, uh, you know, you can't, we're an island, you can't escape and we're going to get you, basically is what the prince said. Uh, Hakeem was one of that. They rounded him up, over 150 athletes. They put them in prison and they tortured them. Mm. Because he was a footballer, they would whack him on the legs with a, a metal pipe and when the blood was gone, he could take no more. They'd let him stand up and walk around, get blood back in the legs. And when they felt he could go, they'd sit him down. And this went on for months. He and he eventually got out. And for various reasons, he fled, escaped. He ended up in Australia. He sought asylum and was granted it. So mm-hmm. he was on a protection visa as a, as a recognised refugee at the time when he spoke out against this regime, actually, because one of their... Um, one of the cousins of the royal family wanted to run for the FIFA presidency against Infantino. And Hakim very bravely was here in Australia as still in his early 20s. And he came out and said, well, no, this person can't do that. He was the president of the Football Federation when, when our captain and me and others were imprisoned, tortured, and he said and did nothing. That individual today is the the president of the Asian Football Confederation mm. and the vice president of FIFA. Nevertheless, yeah. he came out and did that. At that point... They said, all right, this guy's a dissident in another part of the world. We're going to keep an eye on him. And he decided to go to Thailand on his honeymoon. He was arrested on the tarmac in the plane when he arrived because uh, Bahrain were tipped off that he would be coming and, uh, and a red notice was placed on him from Interpol. From that point on, it was a question of whether he'd be extradited back to Bahrain and very likely never seen again or whether he could somehow find his way out. Yeah. And how did you come to be aware of his predicament? When did you first yeah. learn of him and, and what was happening with him? Um, various people got in touch, some friends who are in the football community, the PFA, yep. uh, you know, of which I'm a former chair, our Players Association got in touch because their club, Pasco Vale, his club uh, in Melbourne that he was playing for at the time, uh, which was in, I think, the NPL, um, their state, the highest state level, uh, you know, all of a sudden this kid was leaving, their player was leaving, went on his honeymoon, got arrested. They found out it's all over the press because he was sharing some photos and video. And next thing, and they're saying, well, what do we do? Like, this is our player. This is an Australian, just <laughs> the sports club. And they're saying, what the hell is going on? This, you know, our kid is part of our family is in extreme trouble. What are we going to do? So they called the PFA, the Professional Footballers Australia, the Players Union, and they called me. And I said, oh, I don't know anything about this. It was probably a couple of days in. I hadn't seen it. I had other things to do. And all of a sudden I said, well, I better have a look at it. So I started to read about it, read what was going on, thought, oh, wow, this kid's in serious trouble. I'd been involved as 
uh, executive member of our players' union. I was the CEO. I was the chair. So, in other words, I've spent 30 years advocating for players with governing bodies and often against governing bodies. So, at that point, uh, Football Australia, uh, Asian Football Confederation, and FIFA were supposed to help him. Yeah. And after after three quarters of a life, um, you know, in that field, I was very sure that that was not going to happen. So I knew that he needed help. Yeah. It would have just taken an extraordinary amount of effort and determination and time and, and all sorts of things on on your part. Did you have to pretty much just put everything else to one side? I mean, how did how did you manage to maintain some sort of normality in your life? You know, talk about, tell us yeah. about the, the pressures on your family too to to have you go off and, and take up this fight. Well, it's, uh, you know, often the pressures on the family, my wife, Lara, and kids is is discounted, including during that period by me, because I'm so focused on, yeah. you know, this, this you know, the severe trauma that this kid's going through. And he's obviously he's a torture survivor already. Um, it's very rough on everyone around you because you just kind of just drop everything. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the world ceases to exist. The same thing happened with Afghanistan recently. You know, the evacuation flights were going, the Australian flights, there's only a week before that was coming to an end. You know, there's a lot of women in trouble. They need to get on those flights. And you just shut down. The whole world shuts down and you just get so focused on, you know, and you just go 24 hours a day, literally on adrenaline. You stop eating uh, because your body doesn't have an appetite. You're just putting all your energy into this issue and the emotional, um, well, not strain, because the Mm. strain is on Hakeem and the strain is on those women. But the emotional kind of um, challenge, I guess, um, you know, is something entirely new. It's like you just step into a completely new paradigm, a different field, and you're uncertain. Are you going to get these people killed? You know, are these are these women going to get on this flight? Is Hakeem going to actually get out, or am I going to mess this up completely? I've never done this before. You know, I could mur- I could kill this kid. Um, there's a whole, and you have to rationalise that in mm. your own mind. So it's very, very tense, very intense time. And that's oh, seventy. Can imagine there's seventy days. Yeah. yeah. So probably over seventy days, seventy five days. I was involved. Um, it was like years. Mm. You know, you just and so afterwards, you're just like a zombie. Um, yeah. And you're, and uh, I, I know, you know, it's happened a number of times now in these campaigns, but, you know, I see the signs from my wife and she sees the other, the opposite direction, but they just can't get through to you. You don't talk to your children. Uh, you sit at the dinner table and you can't think about anything. You're just thinking I've got this and this person's here and is the government going to help? What's going to happen? I should have spoke to that person. And you're getting texts all through the night. You just actually can't operate in the real world. Yeah. And, uh, these days, my wife gets to the point where she says, "Okay, I understand what it is that you're needing to do. You, you're going to switch off here, and we all support it because you need to get these, you know, whatever it is, these people in Afghanistan, um, and we just have to kind of work with that because we all believe that it's important. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a very very it's intense. intense. The worry yeah. with Hakim was about um, I say losing because it was a battle. Mm. Uh, it was a battle against Thailand and Bahrain, and also to move the Australian government." But Which to took lose some shifting, them, didn't it? Yeah, they, they 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 took a lot of shifting here because we had to get uh, the Prime Minister Scott Morrison going. Maurice Payne, the Foreign Minister, you know, I've worked with a number of times, including on Afghanistan. Now, is a wonderful person. Um, and but you know, ministers can only do what the government, you know, the broader cabinet and the Prime Minister is willing to do. And uh, you know, um, and you know, Australia doesn't have a great record on refugees. In fact, I should say we have a horrible record on refugees. So this kid was a refugee, which is another reason why I knew he needed help because I was already a refugee advocate. I thought, God, this guy, this kid's in a lot of trouble. Mm. Um, and so I had to, we had to get the government to move. So it, you know, it was, 
in the end, I was a lot of a lot of people kind of got in touch, and I could see people on social media working and following my lead, following my instructions. So yep. I ended up with this group of people I'd never met, about ten people or so on social media, where we would correspond every day on direct message. I would give them the messages. So, for example, I could I could advocate you know, softly with the Australian government, but I could have other people advocating at the same time on different messages very strongly yep. uh, and opening yep. space for me and other and the diplomats to do their work. So it was very, I worked with the embassy and the ambassador in Thailand. And thankfully, in the end, we were able to create such a noise that the Australian government, you know, decided and Maurice was able to make her influence felt. And in the end, Scott Morrison called me when I was outside of the prison in Bangkok and said, I, you know, because I shared a photo and he said, um, I know you're going in to see Hakeem, please, please give him my best and da-da-da. And that's the moment I thought, okay, we're a chance here. Yeah, and you were a chance. I'll ask you about that moment when you found out um, that he was coming out. Uh, but just before we do that, let's have a listen to a, a piece of audio. This is uh, you and Hakeem uh, just returning home to Australia uh, and facing the media for the first time because, you know, I'm sure as people remember, it did become a massive story. Um, and just, you know, the culmination of, as you said, over 70 days of just absolute hard work and effort. Um, this is you talking to the media uh, upon your return. We were really concerned that anything we said or did could be counterproductive to seeing what we've seen today, which is a young Australian... Um, sorry. A young Australian reunited with his wife. I'm very proud of... Australia. I'm very proud today to be Australian. I think what's occurred over the last almost three months to fight incredibly hard for not just a young player who virtually no one knew, but a refugee who was under our protection and who we felt that all of us needed to step forward and protect. To see him back here on home soil today speaks volumes about the character, the values uh, and the pride that we have as Australians. There you go. Gives me goosebumps yeah. listening to that, Foz. What does it do to you? <laughs> um, it's good memories. I would have liked to have been more articulate, but, you know, the emotion <laughs> in the moment. Oh, exactly. The motion got, again, was there on show, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's really uh, it's really severe. Um, the I already knew at that point, of course, that, you know, we have a, a much greater job to do in broader refugee policy and that there was, you know, thousands of others who are, you know, deeply traumatised, including offshore and so on. So I had that in mind also during. And um, and so I already that morning, actually, I wrote a piece in the Sydney Morning Herald saying, look, this is great, wonderful, you know, because there was, you know, literally hundreds of thousands of Australians who supported and mm. and many high-profile people and just said, look, this is absolutely wonderful, but this is just one kid. And there's all these other people over here that we have been harming. So, you know, we 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 can be you can be proud of what you all did, but please now have a look yeah, over don't here stop and now. let's also do the same for these people. And what is yeah. the difference? There's no difference between them. So, you know, uh, let's be consistent. Yeah. Um, you mentioned uh, in that clip there, um, Hakeem's wife reuniting with his wife. I understand during the fight. She reached out to you at one point and, and pretty much said, please, can you save my husband? And, and that was an incredibly powerful moment for you personally. Yeah, she was, yeah, she, was she is um, extremely smart, um, very strong woman. Um, and 
she yeah we she came up to Sydney and we got in a room. It was reasonably early on, and you know I was advocating strongly. And she asked me, "Are you going to help my husband?" And of course, I said to her, "Yes, of course." Look, as you can see, I'm doing one, two, and three. But she wasn't accepting that as an answer. In other yeah. words, she was smart enough to know that there's advocacy and there's advocacy. Yeah. Right? You know, we can sign a petition and do something and raise your voice. That's fine. But are you really going to go all the way for my husband? Is basically what she was saying. Yeah. And I said to her, "Yes, I am." Uh, and. I took her to see actually Amnesty in Sydney and she convinced them or helped us convince them to come on board. And it's at that point when I started to think about planning a trip to Bangkok and that's when, you know, we just went full on. Yeah. Tell me about the moment that you got the news that he would be released uh, and, and also the moment where you first got to actually embrace this guy whose cause you had taken on Mm. despite never actually having met him. The I had a call from Maurice, the foreign minister, and the ambassador in in Bangkok, and we knew that over about the next seventy two hour period, there was so there was negotiations going on between all of the countries about how it might be resolved, and that's because of the pressure that had been brought to bear. And then, and they said, look, we think that you know the next three days, you know, could be solved. And then uh, after on the second day. I think it was a Saturday, uh, I was there and I got a call from Maurice and uh, basically saying, look, you know, we think it hasn't happened yet, but we think that he's going to be out tonight. And so we talked then about the way that we would handle it, what public messaging that we would, what we would talk about, because ultimately the the governments needed to collaborate. Um, And some of them, of course, were under extreme pressure and duress to do so. And so, uh, you know, was sensitive in some respects. So, uh, you know, we were careful in our commentary when that happened. But I, we thought, said it was basically that night. And so I sat there watching Twitter and some of the journos who I knew uh, in Bangkok who'd come to know during and just watching for any news. Mm. Uh, couldn't really say anything. The only people who literally knew were just, uh, you know, Maurice's office, the embassy, and our little family here. And, and then I started to see, and I got a, a DM from one of the key, I think, BBC journalists in Bangkok. I'm hearing this has happened. I'm hearing something. And we knew that it was happening. Yep. Uh, he, he got out. He got put in a car. He got taken. And then it took several hours for him to get off the ground. So there was no resting until it was, as they said, wheels up. As soon as we knew, knew, knew he was in the air, then it was just basically a relief you would think that it was kind of um celebration there was no celebration it was just kind of wow yeah you know uh, one just really collapsed uh and then we we got a flight late that night almost at midnight down to melbourne and and we went in behind uh you know in through security into a special area to uh you know with the thanks of dfat to um greet him yeah yeah and he just walked in 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 his club shirt uh you know from Pasco Vale and he uh he um you know everyone basically started crying yep <laughs> and he and what did, he just what said, did you say to him do you remember what, what did he say to you <laughs> oh I can't remember I think I just said look welcome brother you know welcome home he wasn't Australian by that time yeah um you know I had I had said to him I believe that we're going to get you out and when you do you know, you'll end up being Australian and you're going to contribute something great to the country. He's very thankful, you know, yeah. about what Australians have done for him. And I said, well, 
you know, you, one day you'll be very special within Australia. Um, you also come from the Australian Muslim community, which is a really important community here who've often felt victimized. I think you can be a voice for that. You know, the, your, you know, what's happened to you can be a bit of a connecting force. And so you don't know where you're going to go. I think you're going to have a really powerful life uh, and you'll be Australian. So yep. he, um, he was just, you know, he, he was tired uh, and, you know, we just hugged. And we put him in, you know, he came outside, he made some comments about how thankful he was to all Australians. And then we put him in a car and he went straight to see his wife. Yeah, I bet. And you guys, are you still mates? I mean, it's an incredible bond, incredible thing to share. Are you still close and in contact? Yeah, yeah. I I call him my little brother. But he, um, you know, last year I shared Ramadan with him where I fasted throughout just in solidarity with him and, you know, his his, um, Muslim Australian community to to kind of build a bridge between there because there's still a lot of, uh, well, racism, but also still a lot of uncertainty and misunderstanding and, and, you know, so sometimes these things can be utilised in a positive sense as well to create, you know, better understanding of, um, of uh, Hakim's community and Hakim's beliefs and others and and his community in Australia. Uh, he had They had a, a baby boy almost a year ago now and, you know, they moved on into a new house and so they're rebuilding their life and there is a lot yeah. of rebuilding happening. I bet. Uh, because, you know, he'd, he'd had a traumatic number of years as a refugee fleeing and all of these things. So yeah. we're in touch constantly and uh, he's doing well. Yeah, good to hear. Uh, and just lastly, Craig, what, what's what's next for you? What's uh, do you, are you the sort of person that has a has a bucket list, or, or what what do you see? Um, you know, sort of demanding most of your life force going on from here. Yeah, I don't really hundred percent know at the moment. Um, I just the way I kind of handle it is I just do things that I'm passionate about and I feel like I'm going to be um, able to look back and say, yeah, that's, that was something good. I spent my time here in a way that I'm proud of and that I might've been able to contribute to something and and not just sport, you know, sport is not enough. Um, Perhaps through sport, through football, for example, we can do much greater things socially. So that's one of the big focuses at the moment is how can football and broader sports step up on some of these broader social change issues, climate change and other things. Uh, that's a big focus now. And, um, and I'll, you know, and I'll, I'll see what happens in future. Just trying to do, trying to make a positive impact in, in as many ways as I possibly can. Yep. Well, we know that whatever you do, you'll do it with, with all the heart and tenacity that we've come to see from you uh, over so many years, uh, wearing so many different uh, hats. So um, congratulations on everything that you've achieved and we look forward to uh, your many adventures to come. Thank you so much for sharing your inspiring story with us uh, on the program. We do appreciate it. My pleasure. Good to chat. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. We look forward to you joining us again next time as we unearth another inspiring story. Stuff for your face and body? It's men's skincare with a purpose. Top quality Aussie-made grooming and skincare to help guys look and feel great with no hassles. Plus, Stuff is helping mental health too. Find Stuff at Woolworths or visit websiteofstuff.com.